Well, most of us have, I believe, uh, learned over the years to see Christmas through the eyes of others as a means of gaining a better understanding of the holiday. Uh, a lot of us have learned the importance of trying to see Christmas through the eyes of children, haven't we? Uh, we find that as the years go by, we become a little overly familiar with the holiday. We may become a bit jaded by all there is to do in this time of year. And so to, to, to catch a glimpse through the eyes of children at Christmas can be a wonderful way to restore that sense of hope and anticipation and joy that comes uh, with the gift of God's grace in this time. At Years past, perhaps, you've attended a church someplace where some pastor encouraged you to look at uh, the story of Christmas through the eyes of Mary and Joseph or the shepherds, the wise men, or someone else. And you've seen the value of that as you see through Mary and Joseph's perspective how important it is to learn to believe, even in the midst of the darkest times, that God is often at work for good that's hard to see. And we must trust him in those days and wait till we find uh, the goodness of his purposes being borne out. Or maybe like the shepherds of long ago, uh, you have seen uh, the reality that God gives to ordinary people a great commission. That it's not just to the robed people or the people that are up on stages that uh, God calls the, uh, the ministry of good news bearing. And uh, maybe it's been through those shepherd-like experiences you've caught on to your call in life. Or maybe even like Herod, you have come to realize uh, that if you hold on to the throne, uh, if you're too much about control in this life, you miss out on the joy and the good gifts of God. There's tremendous value at looking through the events, at the events of Christmas, through the eyes uh, of the other Uh, people we see around the manger scene. But there were others who were participants in the event. Uh, There were other figures that are there prominently in the nativity story whose perspective we also need and which we frankly rarely get simply because the distance between their normal sphere of existence and experience and ours is so great. I'm talking about the value of seeing Christmas through angel eyes. And as I discussed last week, as we uh, began the Advent season together, what they have to teach us about the true meaning of Christmas uh, really begs us uh, to reflect on their experience and perspective as well. To begin to answer the question of what the angels saw requires understanding that angels are not what we often uh, conceive them to be. Popular culture is always filling our minds with images of what angels are. But they are not, first of all, human beings who have graduated the earth and been rewarded with a set of wings and a halo. Okay? I know that's just out there everywhere. You are not going to become an angel someday, as wonderful as you are. Mother Teresa is not an angel now. Okay? Uh, We don't get promoted to angelic status when we go to heaven. Uh, The angels are an order of being entirely separate uh, and permanently separate from human beings. Uh, Angels, secondly, are not pale, wispy creatures who sit around on the clouds strumming harps, glowing softly, 
or speaking in beautiful Irish lilting accents. As beautiful, I lived in Ireland. It's a beautiful tongue. It's a heavenly tongue. It just isn't the angels. Angels will take upon themselves certain uh, human characteristics. They'll adopt language and forms that allow an intersection with human beings, but they are of a different order and magnitude than any other player around the manger scene. The Bible teaches that angels are spiritual beings. Uh, You and I are physical beings with a spirit. Angels are all spirit. They are spiritual beings created by God as we've been created and existing most of the time in that invisible realm of reality for which the Bible's shorthand is the word heaven. Heaven is not a place up there in a three-tiered universe. In its original meaning, the heavens literally meant the invisible places. They meant that dimension of existence that we cannot see with our physical eyes. That is to say that angels are not and have never been limited as you and I are by by flesh, uh, by the appetites and the pulls and the strains that we experience uh, in the flesh. Angels fly on, feed on, exist and thrive in that vast realm of invisible spiritual energy that is the essence of the universe as science is only beginning to perceive the existence of these other planes uh, beyond the merely physical one we see. Angels are always present around us. They're not off on some cloud at a distance someplace. Angels are always around you. Much as Jesus said, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, he said, is near. There may be angels. There are likely angels in this space with us, in this place with us, nearer to us now than we could even dream. Angels have been around for a very long time, the Bible teaches as well. They were already present when the human race was created. They were Uh, witnesses to the beginning of the earth. They were there seeing the rise of humankind. They have seen up close every life, every individual life, every historical event that has happened over the millennia since then. They are not all-knowing as God is omniscient, but because unlike human beings, angels do not die. They do not die once created. They have been around And have learned a lot through the years. We can assume that they have seen so much, they know a great deal. They're like those um, immortal beings we see in the movies, the science fiction films, who just have, have been around for so long, they've amassed a huge wealth in wisdom. And they are eager to share what they know with human beings, where God permits this. They want to tell us what they know and see. When angels do make their presence known, when they do slip out of the invisible realm into the physical realm, the visible realm, it is for one of three purposes. First, they come to make God's nature known. To make God's nature known. Two, they come to make God's care known. 
felt by human beings. And thirdly, they come to make God's plan clearer to us. And this morning, I want to invite you to think about that with me. To think, first of all, about these three aspects of what angels do. And then we'll move on and talk about what their message especially is for us today. First of all, when angels appear out of the invisible realm to human beings, it is often to make God's nature known, to make his nature known. They lift the gaze of people above the common level. They, they elevate the perceptions of human beings above the ordinary Uh, distractions or the definitions of greatness with which we settle. And they awaken human beings to the vastly greater character of God. It's why when angels come, they come exploding in praise. They come uh, trying to speak in, in the most glorious terms possible about the nature of God. They come singing to us of his blazing holiness and his brilliant glory. And because the angels reflect so much more of that nature in themselves, they have been With him, the great God of this universe, so intimately and for so long, they have taken on some of the aspects of his own nature and they reflect that character to us. And because of that, an encounter with one of these phenomenally pure and powerful beings is almost always a terrifying experience for human beings. They are just so glorious. And we are so not yet that it is almost always terrifying to meet one. Now, now I say almost always because the Bible suggests that there are times when angels move amongst us carefully veiled. In fact, the book of Hebrews reminds us that this is one of the reasons why we should be especially eager to show kindness to strangers. People in my family know me. They know I'm not a stranger to them. They know I'm no angel. But at the coffee line today and when the temptation to fight over the donuts come, just consider the possibility that you may be in the presence of someone of a different order. In fact, the Bible says, for by so doing, by showing kindness to strangers, some of us will have entertained angels without knowing it. For the most part, however, to meet an angel who has rubbed shoulders with the almighty God himself is a cataclysmic experience. It shatters one's pride. It weakens one's knees. It it, it undoes one in a sense by the gap between that glory and our reality as it did to the prophet Isaiah on one occasion like this long ago when he simply cried out in the presence of the angels, Woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm amongst a people of unclean lips. And yet, almost every time, In such encounter, what we see the angels doing is reassuring human beings. They appear, human beings are terrified, and as they reveal in their very person the grand nature of God, they also move to reassure human beings. Their first ministry is to 
reveal to us his nature. Their second ministry is to express his care to human beings. And so angels, angels often first say to human beings these words, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, Joseph. Fear not, Zechariah. Do not be afraid, Mary. Fear not, shepherds. A consistent ministry of the angels is to express the loving care of God to human beings. More than 100 times throughout the Old Testament, more than 200 times in the entirety of the Bible, angels get pictured. And most of the time, they are being pictured as coming to express God's care for human beings. They're pictured as coming to people in times of deep need. And so we see them coming to Hagar and Gideon and Abraham and David and Elijah and Daniel and dozens of other people in the Scripture story to bring them the encouragement or the challenge or the comfort or the guidance that they desperately needed when they were despairing or or fearing or powerless or lost. The psalmist says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who revere him. The angel of the Lord is right around those who fear him, who revere him. And he will command his angels, writes the psalmist elsewhere, concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Some of you are in a place in your life right now where you're despairing a bit. You feel lost or alone, perhaps. And God comes to you. He reaches out and he puts his hand on you. And perhaps in the invisibility of his touch, you, you, you don't see it, of course, but you feel somehow there's someone who has not left you alone. And it is his angels caring for you, reminding you that he cares. The angels want us to know that as terrifyingly awesome as is the holy and glory God. He cares profoundly for people. And we see this displayed so beautifully in this passage from, from Luke's gospel that is on the screen. He wants to bring good news to us. God wants to bring good news to us amidst all of the bad news, amidst all of the hard and the de depressing news of our lives. God wants to, us to be filled with great joy. He wants us to know an abiding peace amidst all in this world that would otherwise drag us down or dizzy us, the angels tell us. God wants to extend this grace of good news and of great joy and of peace, not just to the good or the religious people, not just to people of one language or tongue, not just to the people who are pretty or to the successful ones or just to the poor ones. God's Blessings are for all the people, the angels say. They're for all of the people. The message of the angels is that in spite of all of our sins and failures, the favor of God still rests upon the human race. It is not, as some people think, that God is waking, waiting for us to finally wake up and clean up our act, and then he will favor us once more. No, while we were still sinners... 
He lays his favor upon us. And this good news of great joy is for all people. God loves us. God has not given up on this human race. He has a plan to rescue us. God has a, an indefatigable purpose and promise. He will rescue us. And it is finally that remarkable, unimaginably creative and powerful plan which the angels are eager to share. They come to make his nature known, his care felt, and his plan clear. And thus we read in Luke's gospel, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Here she is, 14 years old, unwed, unwed and pregnant in a land that did not deal kindly with circumstances like this. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. For you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forevermore. And his kingdom, unlike David's, will never end. What did the angels see in this child that is still hard for us to take in? How could the birth of a baby bring about the changes needed in this world or in you and me? What the angels knew about this is what we're going to try and rediscover for ourselves or maybe see for the first time in these weeks ahead. But let me just inc- conclude this first installment, if I may, by sharing a story that begins us on that way. Bruce Thielman recounts a tale that emerges out of Bret Hart's wonderful book, The Luck of Roaring Camp. The Luck of Roaring Camp is about the toughest, meanest, most brutal, crude town, mining town actually, in all of the Old West. The residents of Roaring Camp were almost all murderers, thieves, or drunkards, and those were the best of the citizens there. It was a miserable community of humanity. And among this den of hundreds of degraded, brutal and brutalizing men, There was just one woman, a gal named Cherokee Sal, who tried to serve all of these men and who sadly died one day while giving birth to somebody's baby. Well, the death of Cherokee Sal presented the residents of Roaring Camp with a significant problem. Not only was there not a servant to use and abuse any longer, now they were stuck with this baby. What would they do with Cherokee Sal's child. At first, they decided they would just stick the baby in a box they had. They had a wooden box, and they put the baby in the box. They stuffed some rags underneath the baby in the box and just left her there. 
But when they got to looking at her, when they saw the baby in this box, somebody remarked that it just didn't look right. Something about this just did not look right. And so they dispatched a man on an 80-mile journey off to Sacramento to find a more suitable container for this baby. And the man returned a short while later with a rosewood cradle. And so they took out the old box and they put in the rosewood cradle and they put the baby into the cradle on top of the rags. And then they noticed there was something about the rags that just did not look right. So they dispatched another one of their members back to Sacramento. And he came back a little while later with some silky blankets and some lacy things. And they wrapped her in these and they set her in the rosewood cradle. And And everything looked fine for a moment. Until somebody got to noticing that now the floor underneath that cradle looked so filthy. And so several of the men got down on their hands and knees and they began scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing that floor until it was sparkling clean in a way that had never been before. But that only made it clear how dirty the walls were. You've been there, you've decorated, you know how this works. And the ceiling was atrocious. And these windows that had no curtains on them, something needed to be done about that now. It was obvious. And so they set to work. Things were starting to look as they should for the newborn. But the men now began to notice that the baby was having a hard time sleeping. What with all of the brawling in the streets and the heavy drinking and the coarse language, you know. So they had to put an end to that. You couldn't disturb the baby when she was taking her nap. Gradually, the whole climate of Roaring Camp began to change. And then they started taking the cradle outside sometime on sunny days. They would set it out on the porch or right out there in the, in, at the edge where the porch met the street. So that as they went by on their way to the mines or coming to and from, they could, you know, just check up on her, make sure she was okay. But as soon as they put her out there, they began to notice how bad the street looked (laughs) and the area around it. And so they began to go to work there. They started to to, to clean up the grounds and to plant flowers and they developed quite a nice little garden there and began to change things down some of the other streets. And the men would bring these shiny little stones and baubles that they found deep down in the mine to give to the baby. And as they would pass the gifts to the baby, they noticed how dirty their hands were. So there was a run on the general store and all of the soap was gone and all the shaving equipment was disappearing and even the little perfumey stuff that men sometimes put on to clean up was being bought out like crazy. And bit by bit, that one little child changed everything. Not just on the outside, but on the inside where it was needed most. That little child changed everything about Roaring Camp. In his book, Listening to Your Life, Frederick Beekner writes this. It is an indisputable truth 
that when the Christ child was born, the whole course of human history changed. Art, music, literature, Western culture itself, with all of its institutions and Western man's whole understanding of himself and his world began to transform. It is impossible, writes Buechner, to conceive how differently things would have turned out if that birth had not happened for millions of people. For millions of people, the birth of Jesus made possible not just a new way of understanding life, but a new way of living it. I believe that when the angels saw the child, they smiled, a knowing smile at the sneakiness of God, at the brilliance, the sheer genius, the glorious simplicity of his plan. Babies, as you know, almost always, almost always have this way of bringing out something better in us. I mean, we're driven to distraction by them sometimes, but for the most part, right, they bring out something better inside of us. And this was not just any baby the angels saw. They knew what lay inside this life. Here was a life so sinlessly pure, so rapturously good, so brilliantly beautiful that the angels knew that whoever really stopped to truly behold him, to truly draw close to him, could not, would not help but be changed by that encounter. And so this is what they would urge us to do this Christmas. Come, let us behold him. Come, let us behold him. I know there's so much to do. (laughs) I know there are lists still to be made and presents still to be bought and parties still to be attended. There are decorations to be hung. There are trips to be made. But this will not change. All of this will not change what needs changing in our world. We're going to go back to January and the tinsel will come down and the lights will be gone and we'll have the same world, the same selves we ever had before. It's not going to be these external things that will alter us in the way that we most need. Above all, above all else this season, follow the gaze of the angels. Will you? Will you try and do that this year? Will you try and follow the eyes of the angels? And as the old song goes, will you turn your eyes upon Jesus? Will you gaze into his wonderful face? For if you do, if you do, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And I might add, the desires of your heart and kindled again by the light of his glory and grace. Please pray with me. Almighty God, Almighty God, We pause in humble awe 
before the marvelous mystery that you became like us, that we might become like you. Amidst all that would distract, all that would deceive us in this cluttered season, stop us in our tracks often. Stir us by your Spirit daily. Bring us to this place weekly that we might see more of what the angels saw and that in beholding you, we might start to see everything change that so needs changing. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.